We will be in the book of Amos for the study of this hour, starting in chapter 8 in just a moment. Amos chapter 8. It's a joy to be with everyone this morning to be able to worship our God together. That is always the case. I've been encouraged by your participation in worship and edified, and I'm very thankful for your participation. Appreciate the reading of the scripture and the leading of prayers, and for Landon's excellent uh, job in leading us in singing. I appreciate the thought that he put into those song selections, and it was certainly uh, encouraging to me and beneficial, and I know that it was to you as well. Hopefully, as we continue in a worship to God and the proclamation of his word this morning, he will be pleased and you will continue to be edified. I said turn to Amos 8, but usually our scripture reading is where we'll start out in a sermon. You, if you haven't noticed that, uh, maybe you'll start to notice that I give a scripture to be read before, and, and sometimes it's right where we start, sometimes not. But I think Psalm 119, and we'll eventually study that in our Bible classes, is a very well-known psalm to us, at least in the great perspective, looking at it as a whole. It's about the Word of God. It covers each section um, that it's divided in. It uh, starts with a Hebrew letter, and it's an acrostic of, of a long sort that praises God for His Word, thanks God for His Word, and instructs others to go to his word and value his word. It gives us the benefits of his word. And that's what Riley read for us earlier. A plea, a, a great request for God to, he says, deal bountifully with me. He wants to hear wondrous things from his law. He, he feels like a stranger in the earth. Where, where does he go? How does he know where to go? Well, give me your word for that kind of guidance and so it's a great psalm throughout its entirety and in that great section that was read before uh, the lesson of the hour of the positive benefit of God's word, the, the need of God's word. It's irreplaceable. We can't get through this life and be pleasing to God without his word. And we know that and we appreciate that. We long for it and we see how positive it is. And for that reason, God's revealed it to us. He wants us to have his word. He would never do something to keep his word from those people who want to have it. But here's something interesting in Amos chapter 8. In a prophecy to a people in the northern nation of Israel who are unfaithful, Amos being a prophet of Judah sent to Israel, who are now ripe for judgment and will be led into Assyrian captivity. There's something very interesting that God says is going to happen. And it really may seem very ironic as we think about what we just had read in Psalm 119. In verse 11 of Amos chapter 8, this is what is revealed by the Spirit. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. And that day the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Isn't it interesting to you that as much as we need God's word and he created us 
as dependent creatures on his will and his revelation, that he is telling his people in this section of scripture, though you need it desperately and you will be seeking it, I'm not going to give it to you. And it's got to obviously be understood in its context or else God is contradicting himself. He's telling us we need his word. He's telling us the blessed man meditates on his word day and night. He's revealing to us characters of faith who long for God's word like David in the psalm we just looked at in Psalm 119. He's encouraging us to seek his word, to find his truth, to walk in his ways. And yet here's a people who he says will look for it and he will not give it to them. But why? Notice in chapter 3 of Amos and in verse 1, this is what the scripture tells us. Amos 3 verse 1, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. I chose you, I saved you, I sanctified you, I revealed my word to you, I made you different, I blessed you beyond measure, you're my people and I am your God and you rebelled against me. You forsook me. You committed adultery against me with the nations and idolatry. You have forsaken me, and there will be great consequences. In chapter 6 and verse 14, he explained, Behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath, to the valley of Arabah, that is from the north, the northernmost part of this nation to the southernmost part of this nation, you will be afflicted. And we know that nation historically to be the Assyrian nation. Now in a time of turmoil, in a time of great need, as we're afflicted, as they're afflicted by their enemies, what would they think to do? I need God. I need his guidance. I need his word. And he'll say, it's too late. You could have had it all of these times and I tried to give it to you and you rejected it. You replaced it with various things and false worship and false religion and false doctrine and whatever you can name. And now you want it and you need it and it's not going to be found. What a terrible, terrible state that Israel found themselves in. They were certainly a blessed people beyond measure. We'll see that physically throughout the prophecy of Amos. They had an abundance of wealth and material blessings. They had the promised land. They were at the zenith of their existence. They were so wealthy. And among all those blessings, their greatest blessing, they forsook. And they would not be able to find it again. Now here's a question. The New Testament reveals to us the complete revelation of God. In the man, Jesus Christ, God is fully revealed and we know Jesus through the word. And we studied that a few weeks ago about how the word of God is so important and it needs to be preached and it needs to be demanded. It needs to be longed for and it needs to be requested. Could this be something we find ourselves in today? Could this predicament where we're looking for the word of God or so we think we are, we, we need the word of God, whether we know it or not, and we can't find it. It's nowhere to be found. Could that happen? Could there be a famine of the word of God for me as an individual? But this was a national thing for us as a congregation. Could that happen? 
where this congregation has stood for truth throughout the years and has been a beacon of light in this community, could it be possible that one day you won't find the Word of God at 84th Street? Someone will come in from out of town seeking the Word of God and they're not going to find it here. There will be people in these pews starving for the Word of God, but they won't find it when they come to worship. Could that be possible? If we don't think it's possible, it will happen. And I think we need to learn from this great prophecy. Israel was struck by the worst kind of famine you could imagine. Worse than any image you could see depicted on the internet from famines in the past and the present, they were afflicted the worst because it was a famine of the Word of God. And brethren, I think that if we go the same direction that they went, we will have a famine of the Word of God too. We've got to treasure God's Word while we have it. We've got to, as Isaiah 55 says, seek Him while He can be found and while He is near. We've got to make sure that we don't fall into such a great famine as they fell in. Let me suggest to you firstly, as we turn to Amos chapter 3, that the reason this famine of God's Word came upon them was due to their materialistic mindset. In Amos 3 and verse 15 This is what God says, I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. He's not saying it's wrong to have a house or two houses. But here's the problem. Notice in chapter 6, you've got a lot of luxury. You've got a lot of stuff and you take pride in that and God's going to wipe it clean. He's going to wipe it away. Notice in chapter 6, woe to you who are at ease in Zion. That's the problem. They're complacent. Are you, are you satisfied with your bank account? And if you're not, is there a number that you'll be satisfied with? Are you satisfied with any of your physical possessions? And if not, is there an amount or a certain item that will bring satisfaction? It says they were at ease. And that says they trust in the Mount Samaria, verse 1 of chapter 6. Notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. He's calling them to go over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great and go down to the Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms or is their territory greater than your territory? And while it may be reflected in your translation, there's some nuance in the language and there's some question about exactly what he's saying. The general point is look at all of these nations that have had success and power and wealth and they are destroyed and judged by God. Do you think you're different than them? Certainly acting like it is what he's saying. Notice verse 3. Woe to you who put off far the day of doom, who caused the seed of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of string instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best anointments, who are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore, they go now, they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquet shall be removed. The Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. They had a problem with materialism. And we may think, you know, that's that's way too emphasized today. That's you know, we live in a wealthy nation of, of America and, and, and we've, 
we've been able to reap the fruits of that and we should be proud of that. There's nothing wrong with that and, and we're proud to live in this nation. So let's stop trying to make each other feel bad about all the stuff that we have. But that's not the point even in Amos. They had allowed their stuff and their value in their stuff to warp their spiritual perspective. It's interesting that man can get to such a low point spiritually where they're thinking about, if they're even thinking about, but they're thinking about their spiritual standing before God through what they physically see. I can't possibly be in danger of judgment when God has blessed me with all of this. This nation is a Christian nation, after all, is the way a lot of people will speak. No, it's not. It may have been founded on some of those kinds of principles, but brethren, we live in a pagan world now. And I think that the church has been affected by it in great ways. It's not that we can't have things. It's not that there cannot be wealthy people who are faithful. Abraham was a very wealthy person. First Timothy chapter 6, while it warns about the pursuit of riches, it also encourages rich Christians to continue doing righteously with their riches. That's not the point. That's not materialism. You can have a cent to your name and be a materialistic person and be a covetous person, be a greedy person. Let me tell you, materialism will bar out the Word of God if we're not careful. Notice in Matthew, the 13th chapter, and in verse 22, when Jesus speaks the parable of the sower and he gives the explanation of these various soils, he says, he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. If we get so wrapped up in our things and our jobs and our physical goals and all of those kinds of things that are daily tasks that certainly we've got to address, but if we get so caught up in them that it becomes a daily worry and concern and care and it neglects or causes the neglect of our study, of our attendance and worship, where we're not meditating on the law day and night, but we're actually constantly thinking about and worrying about my job or the stock market or what I'm going to do when I get out of church. You understand the direction we're headed in? Materialism will choke it out. We may think, I can juggle this. I can do this. But God is saying, don't play that game. It's dangerous. Remember in Matthew chapter 6, what God said about worry? And a lot of times we like to think, you know, it's, these are important things. And so it's good that I'm, I'm really dwelling on them. Well, we've got to be careful we're not in sinful worry because that's what Matthew 6 is about. And it starts with laying up treasures in heaven not on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. It says where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Then it starts to talk about how damaging that is. What do you mean where your treasure is, your heart will be also? He talks about the lamp of the body, which is the eye. And if, if your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He's speaking about having split vision. You've got to be solely focused on the spiritual. And you might think, how do I do that when I've got a job? How do I do that when I've got a family to feed? Places like Colossians chapter 3 and 4 jump out at the page, uh, jump out at me from the page, where it speaks about having a husband and a wife. It speaks about having children. And it speaks about having employers or 
masters. And it's telling us all that you do in word or deed needs to be done in the name of the Lord. That is, when you are focusing on your job, when you are focusing on providing for your family, you're doing it through the lens of serving Christ. If that's your focus and it's not, I've got to gain for us, then it completely changes how things work. But if you're laying up treasures on earth, your vision will be split. Your whole body will be full of darkness. You will be serving God or not God, but by serving mammon because you can only do both for so long. You're going to despise one and love the other. You're going to completely miss the focus on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Materialism will bar out the word of God. There's an interesting example of this in John 6 that we're very familiar with where there were people who sought Jesus not because they saw the signs, but because they ate of the loaves and were filled. Do you understand the implication of that? What they were eating was miraculous bread and fish. I understand it was within the material elements of the universe, but it came about miraculously. That grain that made that bread was not grown in the ground. It was created by the Word of God. That fish did not spawn and come in the water and grow and then was caught. It came from the Word of God miraculously. But because of their physical focus, all they saw was bread and fish. They completely forgot that it was a sign. They did not see the great significance for it. He says, labor for the food which endures to everlasting life, not for the food which perishes. Do you understand how that can happen? Just think of it in this way. And, and I want to say this to encourage especially all the men my age and a little older, whatever, to really think about this because I think sometimes... You know, preaching and teaching, it seems to go over our head and we don't think about the practical application and that he's talking to me. We recently had an elder appointed and it's a wonderful thing. Those men will grow old. Those men will be physically incapable one day of serving in that capacity. They will have served their time and who else will stand up? Who's going to fill that? And someone says, you know, well, work's really busy right now. My kids are at a certain age where I'm going to have to focus back here and do this later. But if that's our perspective, we'll never get to the point of being qualified to be an elder. You see how that will bar out the word of God where we're good now, but if we're materialistically focused and we're not careful, as much as we intend good to come out of that kind of focus for our families and for even this congregation, be able to contribute more after all, one day there's not going to be a congregation standing for truth. One day we're going to be starving for leadership and it's not going to be there because the people that are old enough have to start becoming qualified and they're not already qualified. You can apply that to anything. Do you see how that happens? If we're so focused on this world, we'll actually even start taking spiritual principles like in John chapter 6, spiritual topics and only be able to look at them the same way the world looks at them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he, he rebuked them for their carnality. And you know what their carnality led to, what it consisted in in this particular text? He says in verse 3, For where there is envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? And so they had gotten to the point, and I know carnality is a broader thought than just materialism, but they had gotten to the point in their physical mindset 
where the way they valued Paul or Apollos was not by the gospel which came from them as they preached the word of God, but based on their rhetoric, their speaking ability, what they thought was their wisdom, not the wisdom of God. You see how even something good can actually be lost based on the way that we're looking at it in our perspective. And so it is in a congregation. So it is in a family. So it is with an individual. If I start thinking like the world, where what I have is a reflection of where I stand, then we're going to lose the Word of God. We cannot be materially focused. We seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and these things will be added to you or will be in the same place that Israel was in. I think another reason why these people found themselves without the Word of God as they hungered and thirsted for it but could not find it was because they had always been fond of sin. And that seems to go without saying, but I think it's important that we understand that. In Amos chapter 2 and in verse 6, I want us to notice the Lord addressing their sin says, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned and the house of their God. Notice in verse 7, they pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor. He says that right after, and again, this is another verse where there's different views of it, but notice the King James, New King James Version language. They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor. Right after saying they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They're taking advantage of righteous men and poor righteous men, they're going after the seemingly weak. And in verse 7, it's as if they can't wait to take advantage of them. They're panting to take advantage of them. They want everything that they have, even the dust on their head. They're just so fond of taking advantage of people. Notice in chapter 8 what that fondness translates into. In verse 5, they say, when will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat? Now I want to pause there. These are religious observances and they're saying, we can't wait for it to be over. We can't wait for church to be over so I can go make some money, so I can go do this. And you might think, yes, that's bad enough. And it certainly would be if you are so eager to get out of church, get out of the study, get away from this so you can resume your everyday activity. That's bad enough. But notice what he goes on to say making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. They're not loving worship. They're not loving righteousness. They're so eager to get past that point of their day or their week or whatever so that they can not just resume their physical lives, but do it with dishonesty with sordid gain, with oppression, and lacking compassion and mercy on their fellow man, their fellow brother or sister as the nation of Israel. These people were fond of sin. And they were so fond of sin that eventually God took His way, word away from them. You might think, 
that couldn't possibly be me. But you remember in James chapter 4 and in verse 4, what James calls these brethren adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What constitutes friendship with the world? The word literally means fondness. You ever catch yourself being fond of something that's actually worldly? I know we all have from time to time. You chuckle at a joke that is completely and totally inappropriate and ungodly. You're entertained by a show that's very, in its very core, is focused on ungodly principles. Not that it's just like a, it just happens to be, this is just kind of a thing that comes along with it, but the very core of it is ungodly. Fondness of sin, that's what that is. And he does not just say, you've got most of it right and God understands you're gonna, you're surrounded by a world of iniquity, you're gonna struggle at times. He says, you are an adulterer, an adulteress. You're an enemy of God. Not because you're doing those things with the world, but because you're fond of those things to begin with. If we've got this worldly perspective and we're, we're valuing the things of the world and we're, we're itching to just try to give an excuse and find a loophole to get as close to the world as possible, we're going to lose the word of God. James 1 and verse 21 tells us to do this. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Why does he say that? If I don't lay aside the iniquity and my desire for it, I will not be able to receive God's word. If I don't set it aside first, there's no room for God's word. If I've got fondness of the world, I'm not going to be fond of God's word and I won't be able to find it. What sin and worldliness does is it defiles the conscience. And when the conscience is defiled, brethren, when your conscience is defiled by a fondness of sin, the word of God will be lost. It will be barred out. I'm not saying you won't ever study your Bible. I'm not saying you'll stop coming to church. But the way that you hear God's word will be completely damaged and affected. You notice in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul tells Timothy that the purpose of the commandment, the, whether it's the charge to tell some not to teach anything but the word of God or just all the commandment of God, that is his word. The purpose of God's will and his direction is love from a pure heart of good conscience and sincere faith. What the word of God does is it trains our conscience so that what comes out of our heart and what projects forth from our lives is righteous and holy. And so if we're not valuing that and transforming and learning and teaching our conscience by God's word, that's going to lead to a value of those things which are opposite of God's word and in turn will affect how we read God's word as we progress. Notice what he says in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 18 to Timothy. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience. Faith has an object. It's the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In order to wage the warfare, you've got to have faith. You've got to go to God's word and a good conscience that comes from that. Why? Some have rejected this. They've rejected faith and a good conscience. And concerning the faith, that is the object of faith, the word of God, have suffered shipwreck. 
when we don't lead our lives with a conscience that is trained by God's will, and instead it's a conscience that is tainted by the worldliness that surrounds us and has affected the way we think and how we feel as sin is interacting with us, then it's going to affect as well how we hear God's word. And we'll start not only requesting for fables and things that aren't substantive, but we'll start hearing the word through a filter that leads to more sin and ungodliness. Fondness of sin will bar out the word of God. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and verses 9 through 12, Paul told those brethren that God will allow you to believe a lie. And the people that will believe a lie are the people who have loved unrighteousness and have not received the love of the truth. To be fond of sin is to take a step in the direction where the Israelites found themselves in Amos chapter 8. Also, I think it's very important to realize how great a part worship plays in our lives as children of God. Someone tries to lead you to believe that the way we worship God, what we do at worship, and finding book, chapter, and verse for it is missing the point and is not that great of a deal, is leading you down the wrong direction, is leading you to a famine of God's word. Worship is this period of time where we come together and we voice who we have been and who we are before God and who he is to us in a way that we have been living the whole time leading up to it. A, a righteous and holy life is punctuated by worship. Someone says, I can be faithful to God and not go to church. I can be faithful to God and not go to worship. It is an organic and natural thing to worship God when you're living a life righteously by his word. And so that means working in reverse, the way we worship God will affect the way we hear God and the way we act before God on a daily basis. And that's what the Israelites were guilty of. They got to a point where they could not find God's word. And one of the reasons was they had been worshiping him in unauthorized and perverted ways. Notice in Amos 4 and verse 4, God tells them, come to Bethel and transgress at Gilgal, multiply transgressions, Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. You might wonder, why is he encouraging them to sin? It's not him literally wanting them to do that. There's irony in this. He says, multiply your transgressions. But notice in chapter 5 and verse 4, he says, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal. That's the point. You love it so much, you keep it up and see where it gets you is what he's saying. You think it doesn't matter how you worship me. You think that that's just a, a preacher's dispute or whatever. You keep up, keep up where you're going and see where it gets you. Notice in chapter five, and this is something that Stephen quoted in Acts the seventh chapter. He said in verse 21 of Amos five, I hate and despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings, your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fatted peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Those may seem to be good things, but why isn't God wanting them? 
Why doesn't he want to hear their songs? Why is he not interested in their sacrifices? Because it's false worship, whether it's empty ritualism or it's tainted with error and idolatry. And that's what the context goes on to say. This is what Stephen quotes in verse 25. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikath, your king, and Chion, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. From the very outset of their deliverance from Egyptian bondage, their worship was intermingled with idolatry and error. No wonder they got to where they were with a famine of God's word. Perverted worship will bar out the word of God. It's a reflection on how we see God, on how we approach God, on the way we view God and his will. How serious is it? How set is that? How much do we think we're actually going to be judged by? If I'm willing to approach God in an unauthorized way and worship him in a way that he never asked for and he does not authorize, what am I doing outside of the worship assembly? You think that's going to change? You think it's going to change the way I hear God's commands and his restrictions? Worship matters. We must do it the way God wants. John 4.24 tells us that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I want to remind you of something Jesus pointed out to the Pharisees in Matthew 15. While he was speaking about a particular thing that they taught as a matter of tradition, you remember the quoted scripture that he gave. In Matthew 15 and verse 3, he had said, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Your way of doing things has actually suspended God's way that he required and desired. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 8. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. I want to tell you something. If we just let down our guard here at the 84th Street Church of Christ, and we decided, you know what? We're not going to be pharisaical, as some brethren even call other brethren who try to stand for these truths. We're not going to be sticklers for rule following. We're not going to be so worried about how we do things, but just that we're doing it in the right spirit. It will not be long before this church is filled with immorality and sinfulness of a sort that would make you blush to even think about it. Because worship goes hand in hand with everyday life. It's a reflection. It's an exclamation point on who we are and who we think God to be. I can't sing songs of praise to God if I'm living a life that is blasphemous to his name. Not in sincerity. If we worship God in perverted ways, we're going to miss everything His Word says and our lives will be perverted as well. You might remember that kind of connection in 1 Corinthians the 10th chapter when He's giving the Israelites as an example to be warned by, not follow. They became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. Don't become idolaters as were some of them. False worship. And you remember what he's talking about is when Moses was up on the mountain, they didn't know when he was going to come back. So they had Aaron make them a calf and said, here is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
They were thinking with this calf is represented the God that delivered us from Egypt. And someone might say, well, at least they're still worshiping God. But that's just the point. They weren't. That was idolatry. And what came along with that, it says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, which is a euphemism for what he expressly states in verse 8. They committed sexual immorality. That's the kind of worship that was brought in. That's the kind of lives that it led to. If we don't make sure we're worshiping God exactly how he calls us to worship him, there are terrible, terrible consequences. I want to tell you something else as well. The Israelites were guilty of that led to a famine of God's word is a forsaken justice and righteousness. Notice in chapter 5 and verse 7 of Amos. It says that they turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. So when we think of justice, hopefully we think of something good, something even sweet. They think of it as something bitter. When we think of righteousness, we think of something that is, is good. We want to be characterized by that, but they lay it down into the earth. They kill it. They slay it and they trample on it. Notice in chapter 6 and verse 12, using some of the same kind of language, he asks the question, do horses run on rocks and does one plow there with oxen? Do you take a horse on a rocky path? When, when you're plowing with oxen or you're plowing on a gravel road, why not? Won't it hurt that animal and your equipment? That's what he's saying. That's the point he's making. No one does that because it causes damage to themselves. It has adverse consequences. Then he says this, yet you have turned justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. He's saying when you don't uphold justice and righteousness, when that's not something to be valued and protected as a nation, as a people, bad things happen. Notice in chapter five and verse 10, they hate the one who rebukes in the gate and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Brethren, that's a society we live in. And there are plenty of churches that have that problem where the person who stands up for the truth against sin or error is the one that is castigated and rebuked and admonished. And there have even been times where churches have finally administered church discipline on a person who's trying to stand for the truth. What do you think that's going to do to the word of God and whether we're actually going to still find it? I think that'll affect how we read God's word. In 2 Timothy 3 and in verse 16, it tells us that scripture is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. That means it is promoting justice and righteousness. It is upholding justice and righteousness. It's perpetuating who God is in his people and what is required for that to happen is the proclamation of that word. As we studied not long ago, where Paul told Timothy to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and teaching because the time's gonna come where they won't endure sound doctrine, but instead will heap up for themselves teachers and turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. If that's what we want, if that's what we actually long for and what we entertain, and we don't want justice. We don't want righteousness. We don't want the truth to be stood for in this place. Or my family doesn't want to stand for that. We don't want to be that strict. We don't want to apply that dated word. Then we're not going to have any of the word of God. 
That's what it's here for, after all. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, remember, as we just read, Paul had given the charge of Timothy to charge some in Ephesus that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification. He says something interesting there in verse 7, that these people desire to be teachers of the law, but they understand neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this. What does he mean? That it's not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, murderers, manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and any other thing contrary to sound doctrine and the glorious gospel that was committed to Paul's trust. He's not saying it's not for a righteous person at all. It's that not but sentence structure. It's not merely for righteous, but especially for all of these unrighteous. The word of God is full of grace, but in that grace, the power to save is the convicting power to turn away from sin, to wash it away, but then strengthen us and mold us and change us by the just and righteous character and revelation of God into those who uphold justice and uphold righteousness. Brethren, in a church is to be law and order. Coming from God, coming from the throne. But if we're not upholding justice and righteousness, then what are we doing? You understand that? That's what First Timothy's telling us. If the word of God is just some kind of handbook to the country club that you want to be a part of and you take the good and you feel good and all this kind of stuff. And when something bad happens, it's not addressed. Proper behavior is not lauded and magnified and encouraged and improper proper behavior is not addressed and rebuked. What are we doing? If we want some of the word of God, but not this, we're not going to have any of the word of God. This is what it's for. At the beginning of next year, I intend to begin a series on church discipline. So I won't spend a lot of time here, but I do want to introduce it by suggesting to you that it is one of the most important topics that we could study, believe, and apply. It has been suggested by some brethren very aptly as the forgotten commandment. And brethren, it's such a fundamental thing that if we study it and we come to understand it, it should shock us that it's ever been forgotten. Because again, what are we doing if we're not practicing what we're preaching? What are we doing if we're not applying what we're preaching? What are we doing if we are not enforcing the just and righteous law of God that He so lovingly and graciously revealed to us? In 1 Corinthians 5, there were some people that had a man that had such sexual immorality that's not even to be named among the Gentiles. He had his father's wife, and they were so arrogant. The previous chapter talked about how, oh, you're rich already. You're reigning as kings without us apostles. You think you're so on point spiritually that you are putting up with this kind of sin? That's his point. They're so puffed up. What they didn't realize is it was their undoing. The church was impure. The church was tainted. They were not keeping the feast with sincerity and truth, but with malice and with wickedness. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14, he tells us to warn the unruly, among other things. And church discipline, it starts from teaching onto encouragement, onto correcting mistakes and rebuking 
rebellion, and then certainly withdrawing from the disorderly. But the whole spectrum is church discipline, brethren, and we've got to practice it all if we're to find the word of God and be faithful. But notice in verse 14, warn the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. But then he goes on to say in verse 19, don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And that's just another way of talking about a famine of God's word. To neglect the upholding of justice and righteousness, of warning and rebuking, correcting and administering discipline is to quench the spirit and despise prophecies. If we want the word of God, we've got to have all the word of God. We've got to apply it faithfully. And lastly, but not least, certainly, what brought on that famine of the word of God and what will bring on a famine of the word of God for ourselves too, if we don't learn from their mistakes, is simply a distaste for truth. Notice in Amos chapter 2, in verse 11, the Spirit revealed, I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets saying, do not prophesy. Isn't that ironic? We're raising faithful men and women in this church. And when they stand for the truth, will we be encouraged by that and encourage them to keep on keeping on? Or will we discourage them from being so grounded in their convictions? We don't want to be negative here. That's what they were doing here. I gave you the gifts that you so desperately needed where the word of God would be brought and you tried to reverse what I had blessed you with. In chapter 7, Amos speaks of a vision that he was shown of the Lord with a plumb line, which is a weighted string to measure the verticality of a wall. Is it being built straight? Here's this vision of a plumb line. And it says, the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. He's saying, basically, you're not measuring up to my standard. And there will be consequences to that. I gave you the blueprint. I gave you the standard, but you wanted to build a crooked wall. There's going to be consequences for that. In that same chapter, there's a recoil to Amos's visions and words. And Amaziah told him, don't prophesy here anymore. And Amos said, you know, I didn't pursue this. I was no prophet. I was not a son of a prophet. I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me and said, go prophesy to my people Israel. You think I got to stop that? You think I can stop doing this? They had a complete distaste for the truth. They didn't want to hear sound preaching. And because of that, when they needed it the most, it was nowhere to be found. Judah would be equally guilty of this. It's interesting in 2 Chronicles 36 and in verse 15, the Lord God of their fathers, it says, sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. He's saying, I didn't want this to happen. So I sent you warnings. I sent you instruction. I sent you the recipe to be right with me. And you did not want it. And now look where you are. Hosea 4 and verse 6 says, My people are destroyed 
for a lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. This is what got the Gentiles in their situation where the wrath of God is being revealed because although they knew God, they not, did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They did not like the taste of the truth. And brethren, that's exactly what the parable of the sower was spoken in. That's the context. Why is it that he spoke to them in parables? Why is it that God revealed his truth the way that he did? Where so many people are mistaken. Because so many people don't like the taste of truth. And God's put it in a way where if you don't want it, you're not going to receive it. You are like the people in Isaiah's prophecy where hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed. They have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. Brethren, it happened to God's people back then. And if we follow the same example of disobedience, it will happen here. There are so-called churches of Christ who don't actually have the Word of God. And while they might not know it, they are starving and they are parched for the life-giving stream of the Holy Scripture. It's interesting that in its presence, Israel did not desire God's Word, but in its absence, they longed for it desperately, but they could not receive it. We need to make sure that we don't make those same mistakes. If you're here this afternoon and have not obeyed the Gospel, we want to plead with you to do so before it's everlastingly too late. You have now, and I want to tell you something, to leave this place Putting off what you know you need to do now will not make it better. Satan wants you to think you'll have more time. Satan wants you to think you're being worn down each and every day. But really, your heart grows harder each time you resist God's will. We don't want you to do that. We can assist you in that. We plead with you to come forward. If there's any other spiritual need, come forward while we stand and sing.